0: So we're beginning a new series for the month of September called Wronged. And really this series we're looking at three texts in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the text on anger, the text on retaliation or enemy love, and judgment. And, and really what this series is wanting to do is to, to step into the, the com- complex uh, discussion of how do we love well in a community? You know, if Jesus says in John that I command to you to love one another how do we do that when it's difficult? When love goes beyond being friendly and being kind, what does it look like when love requires confrontation, when when it's not easy to do so? What does Jesus have to say about when we have been wronged, when we have been, you know, made upset? How are we to step in and continue to love each other well? Uh, And I I feel uh, some tension in this because this isn't something we often do very well. Often what we think of confrontation and conflict has been caught more than it has been taught, right? Like we see how uh, conflict is managed at work or in our households. Uh, So we have these stories of how we are meant to do this. Uh, But often, you know, we feel like it doesn't end up going very well. Um, So what it look like to, as a community, handle conflict well? And there's so many things that bring about conflict. Miscommunications, misunderstandings, when we have a disagreement with someone, or really just unmet expectations. What do we do in the middle of conflict? How do we handle it well? Uh, Because I'm sure all of us have experienced a friendship, a relationship that has has felt relational distance because a conflict just simply was not handled well, that it it either blew up or it imploded, meaning we either uh, it blew up around us or we held it and repressed it, and slowly a relationship was corroded away. So what would it look like if Oikos was an extraordinarily grace-filled community? What would that do for our households? What would it do for our with our spouses and our marriages and our workplaces? What kind of witness would it be if that we were a people who knew and practiced how to love well in the midst of conflict? So how are we to be a gracious community in the midst of conflict? So I'm going to ask for two things this morning. One is grace. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be a, you know, an expert on conflict management. Um, and so often these discussions, you know, when we get upset with someone, when we get angry with someone, it's just really complicated. And I'm not going to be able to speak into all those complexities. Uh, but we're going to see what Jesus says on what to do with our anger. Uh, and the second thing I ask is that you begin to think about uh, a moment recently or a moment just in your past where you have experienced deep anger. Can you be thinking about that? Because we want to kind of use that and kind of process it uh individually this morning. So when, when has there been a moment where you've had anger and outrage? And then um how 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 did you deal with it? And let's see what we could do with it. So let's read our text and we're gonna dive in. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 21, if you want to follow along. It, this one won't be on our screen. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison." Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." So let's just talk about anger for a moment. Uh, It seems like in our our cultural age that, um, especially since the 2016 election and then amplified through COVID, it seems that we just live in an age of outrage. Social media and news outlets are, are experts on stirring issues into life or death situations. Twitter feeds seem to just be uh, discussions that don't want to reconcile, but simply see who can win an argument. Who can be most right? Because when I am most right, that means someone else is wrong. I, I've won the argument. Our, our culture seems to enjoy reveling in our anger, in our upset. Uh, whatever, whatever side of the political... Uh, field you find yourself on, we can all agree that it's saturated with anger. It, it's just something that we see every day on our phones, scrolling throughout. And uh, an outpouring of this lately has been um, something called cancel culture and or call out culture. The right ones to call it cancel, the left ones to call it uh, call out culture. Uh, this is when, as we, I'm sure we all know, when a celebrity, someone in the public eye, has done something socially or morally just unacceptable when they've harmed somebody with their words or with their deeds. And what we see is that the, the full force of the internet, of, of social media, Twitter, uh, rages against them. And at the beginning, you know, we saw this often with the Me Too movement, when women rightfully needed a voice to be heard, to find justice, because that's what anger is at the end of the day, it is a cry for justice. Uh, but because social media and the, the way in which this happens, it's, there's relational distance. And oftentimes it goes to the extreme ends. So what was a good thing often now has been distorted. Uh, one uh, journalist uh, on this talks about it like this. Uh, a Times article in 2016 called America's Anger is Out of Control says this about anger. The catch is that rage uncorked becomes rage indulged. And rage indulged becomes rage applauded. And pretty soon anyone with a gripe decides it's okay to crank the dungeon machine up to 11 we seem to enjoy being angry. There, there's some sort of satisfaction that happens when, in our anger, we can force ourselves onto someone. Uh, but like I said, often this goes to the extremes where it's, it's not very healthy or helpful anymore. Uh, Tim Kreider, who again is a, a contributor to the New York Times, calls this outrage porn. That he was almost taught to write in such a way that it stirs the crowd, that that's what sells on social media, on news outlets, that, using anger is just simply what we like to read and to hear. But this does two things. It leads to the extremes of total destruction, no reconciliation, um, that when uh, we seek injustice is that, that there seems to be no hope for the restoration of what's going on. But the other extreme is now, uh, because it feels so good, we often will use, as as Kreider says, any gripe is allowed to take it to 110%, right? Any little thing, which often then just does injustice to things that really need to be taken care of because it gets all muddled in the small things that need to be handled one-on-one. So our our culture just seems to enjoy this uh, outrage, this outrage of uh, porn outrage culture that we live in. It seeks to destroy fully or any little thing is allowed to bring the full brunt of social media on it. Tim Crowder continues on like this Outrage is, a, is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. And it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it is a pleasure. It, it, it takes it to the extremes. Not only that, though, but it seems to trickle down into our, our friendships and our kind of one on one interactions that when we have a difficulty with someone, when we're upset, when we have a frustration, When our rage is not directed to the person, but to a friendship, what often happens, we create an echo chamber. We go to them, uh, we might vent, we might share something, but what happens is the knob's just been turned up higher to where we're more angry than when we were before. Uh, It seemed to have trickled down into our friendships. And again, this is difficult because we don't want to upset someone, we don't have awkward conversations, we just kind of go along with it. And this also leads to the, often what's called, uh, you know, when we imagine arguments, it's like, oh, man, if I, if I could have gone back, I would have said this. And we tend to be our, our most clever or our most agile. Uh, but we imagine what it would be like just to win the argument, take our anger, and destroy someone else. But what makes this uh, even more difficult and confusing is that um, this also happens in our churches. Uh, it almost seems to happen at the same levels of anger and conflicts as, as anywhere else. Churches split because they can't come to a unified agreement. Uh, there's, there's a disagreement, and churches just split. They move on. Uh, church partners often leave because, you know, it, it's hard to take our anger, take it to someone, and to deal with something. It, it's much easier just to kind of fade away into the background. And because we live in an age where most of us live in large cities— There's a number of options for churches. This isn't the only option. I don't have to run to this person so then I can just go somewhere else. Uh, there's, There's many options to go to. But on top of that, it gets compounded because then we also live in such a transient age that we often move for jobs, opportunities, taking us from one city to the next year after year after year. So not only are there options, but we're often not in a place long enough to feel the deep relational connection, to stick it out, to lean into relationship um, and it's just easier to, to move away. And then on top of that, too, uh, our, our culture of churches, our staff and pastors and preachers often go from church to church depending on opportunity. So our, our leadership, our partners, often are not at a place long enough to d- to dive deeply into community, to lean into the anger, and to resolve whatever conflict is going on. Uh, again, with this, Joseph Ellerman, who wrote a book called When the Church Was Family, uh, talks about how... Um, What also makes this really difficult is that we live in a very individualized American society, meaning that oftentimes we place ourselves over the the care and the needs of the church or of the group. He he says it like this, we in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church, or family, for example to which we belong. The the immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. But what we're going to see is though that Jesus' call for conflict and anger is not to lean away, it's not to fade away, but to lean in even when it is getting difficult. Whereas the American society would teach us that you, you need to take care of number one, leave. But this also gets difficult because in our moment of hurt, which is often what causes anger, that's our natural re- reaction, to, to lean away, that, you know, that hurts. But what is ironic and what is kind of devious about anger is that even if we get up and leave, what happens is that the anger doesn't get resolved. It's, it's, it's the unpacked bag that sneaks into our trunk as we take it with us to our next community. So then that same dysfunction, that same, ang- same anger just shows up again and again and again because it's never dealt with, it's just ran away. One of the worst things that we can do is to swallow our anger and to not take care of it, because it just becomes a poison in the well. It, it, it corrodes and erodes from the inside out. And on top of all of that, we know that our marriages, our, our parents, our families, our spouses are not immune to this either. And oftentimes when we experience anger in, in this sphere of our life, it's the most shame inducing. It's because we, we experience this anger the most. We often become most angry with the people that we most love, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but, you know, we get angry when our, our, we snap at our kids uh, for making a mess or for not listening. Uh, household chores, taking up the trash, keeping it tidy, often sparks these brawls that seem to have no winner at the end of them. That even in our families, that this is where we seem to most experience and in, most intense emotions of anger, and it's because it's towards the people that we most love, and it's either explosive or repressive. We, we explode using our anger like a battering ram, or we repress, kind of putting down the moat, putting up the walls, not talking. It's either violence or silence when dealing with our anger. Frederick Buechner put, puts it like this, of the seven deadly sins, wrath is proper, pro- possibly the most fun, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last twosome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are given back. In many ways, it, f- it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, however, is that you are what you are wolfing down. The skeleton at the feast is you." You see, anger only destroys, either destroys our relationships, or it ends up destroying ourselves and destroys our community. Uh, but, you know, personally, I don't enjoy conflict. I don't think anyone really does. I'd much rather keep the peace than to make peace, you know, because we fear, well, if I go and, you know, deal with it, I'm going to lose the friendship. I'm going to lose the relationship. Or, you know, who am I to confront someone? Who am I to share my anger with someone? Because imperfect. I'm just as imperfect as anyone else. We we come up with these reasons to to avoid or to explode, all the while we end up pulling and pulling away. So what does anger do? I want to kind of talk about three ways in what anger does. Anger destroys, it blinds, and it transfers. And this is what I mean. We've talked about the destruction a lot. But oftentimes when we feel wronged, our anger wants to destroy. But it is never an equal balance. Right? Whenever we, we go and wrong someone else, it's always to the next level. It always escalates, always escalates. Anger naturally destroys if it is not taken care of. Second is that uh, anger blinds. In the heat of rage, in the heat of anger, what happens is we don't see that person for their humanity. Because it's easier to justify our anger if that person is not a complex human just like we are. Uh, one author talks about this as we totalize the other person. And by that, he means often we take the, the one mistake, the one moment that we, we see this person is that we're angry about, and we we totalize, well, that, you know, person cut me off in traffic. They're, they're selfish. They're They're thoughtless. It's easier to be angry at someone when we can see them for this one identity and not for the full humanity that they are. But it also blinds us to a lot of times the the reality of what's going on in a situation. Anger, as we're going to talk about, is such a responsive and reactive thing. We, we take information, and in the moment, we tell ourselves the story to make sense of, you know, what's going on. But oftentimes, our anger blinds us to the fuller picture. So there's often misunderstandings, miscommunications that lead to more and more and more anger. Anger blinds us, but anger also transfers. And what we mean by that is simply, anger has really bad aim. Uh, typically anger gets directed to someone who it's not needed to be towards. You know, we get angry at work because our, our boss is laying on to us because we're not meeting our numbers, but they don't understand the full thing going on either, and then we go home and take it out on our spouse. Or, you know, all the different ways anger gets just misdirected. Anger often has really, really bad aim. So this is what anger does. So it's no surprise that Jesus talks pretty strongly about anger. Uh, but what is actually anger. What is going on when we experience this this emotion? Uh, We know simply that anger is a secondary emotion. It's the response when something is not right in us or in the world around us. Uh, One writer talks about it like this, as pain signals injury to the body, anger signals injury in the soul. Anger is what happens when we feel emotions of disappointment, hurt, rejection, shame, embarrassment, it's when we lose a sense of control or when we felt misunderstood. That's why anger is often described as like the iceberg. It's, it's the thing on top, uh, floating on top of all these other emotions. It's what comes to the surface. Anger is also a safeguard. It's when we experience this deep longing within ourselves that is unidentified and undealt with, and it, it comes out as anger. Uh, Smith just finished up a series called Jesus and Sex. And don't worry, we're not going back to it. Um, but in that, in that series, he talked about a book called Unwanted. In this book, uh, Jay Springer notes how, how sexual desire, lust, and anger almost always go hand in hand. And he says this about it. Lust and anger are the primary tributaries that often flow into the river of unwanted sexual behavior. You see, Lust and anger are so tightly coupled because they both come from a longing for something else, something that is missing within us, either uh, reconciliation, justice, or a fulfillment of desire. He, He goes on, lust points to a great desire for a good thing, like beauty or belonging. Anger aims at our longing for justice and restoration. You see these two things that are both very physical, are are almost intertwined because they're both a longing for something that is not right within us. So we are crying out through either uh, pornography, sexual behavior, or through our anger that we need something fixed and we just do not know how to get there. We don't know how to resolve it. And it's interesting uh, that those are so closely tied, because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches on anger and then goes right into lust. Jesus seems to be picking up on this as well. That Both of these, what makes them so difficult to deal with is that they're both so physical. That's why anger is so difficult to control. Uh, and we all know what happens in our anger, right? Our, our pulse begins to quicken. Our blood pressure rises. There's this physical heat we begin to feel inside of us. And it's often why Anger is illustrated as fire, as this consuming force, because we feel the heat from within us. We begin to sweat. Our, our breathing speeds up. Our muscles tense because we get in that fight-or-flight uh, decision-making time. Our bodies are ready to act. It just de- depends on how we are going to act, what we are going to do. That's why um, Gary Chapman uh, says this about anger, is that we, we can't control our bodily reactions. However, we can't control our mental and physical Responses. Crucial Conversations is a book that talks about how to, how to have really good conversations. And, and they say this, when adrenaline does our thinking for us, our motives flow with the chemical tide, that often our bodies take control. Uh, and we often feel like this. Have we seen this movie? Uh, so this is from the movie Inside Out. This is Anger. Uh, he, in this movie, if, if you haven't seen it, is about Riley, a little girl who moves from Minnesota to California. And this movie is all from the perspective of her emotions, how she's dealing with this change and this transition. Uh, so there's joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. Uh, and what ends up happening is that joy and sadness have to leave to go you know, take care of the problem. So who takes control of the mind panel? It's anger, disgust, and fear. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why he's wearing like business casual attire. I'm sure that's like a commentary I'm not picking up on. Um, But oftentimes we feel like this. There's this sense of control that we have just lost. Uh, We feel like there's fire coming out of our heads. So with all of this in mind, what anger does and what anger is, it's no surprise that Jesus talks about it pretty firmly. And not only that, but Scripture seems to talk about it uh, in a pretty negative light. Proverbs 29 Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Proverbs 22. And it's interesting when you read the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the, the community of wisdom that's been passed on, all of them are pretty, pretty much saying anger's dangerous. We, we need to deal with this well. Proverbs 22 Do not make friends with a hot tempered person, do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. So, so anger is the thing that happens to all of us. It seems to be natural, but Jesus seems to be saying, but you don't really need to be getting angry. So what do we do with this? Is it good, is it bad, is it neutral, is it just a thing? What are we to take and do with our anger? And what makes even more of this complicated is that the pushback is, well, God gets angry, right? You know, God seems to get angry a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, anger is mentioned about 455 times in the Old Testament. 375 of those are in reference to God's anger, but what we need to note is that I think actually God's anger is going to give us a pathway to how we ought to deal with ours. Psalm 145 says this, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Slow to anger and rich in love. You see, God's anger is distinctly holy, It is distinctly unique to God because, of course, he is God. He is perfect. He deals with his anger in a perfect way. But it makes sense that God gets angry because of two of God's main attributes, two of his natures, and that is that God is holy and that God is love, that he is loving. Holiness talking about that he is set apart, that he is distinct, he is unique, that God cannot behold sin, that he is the judger on what is good and what is evil, so what often we see in scripture is that God's people are doing evil against either God or against other people. And because God is holy, he must make that right. He must be just with it. And it also comes from an outpouring of his love. Because he is loving, he wants to reconcile and make right what is unholy. So God's anger comes from his holiness and from his love. But that is the natural outpouring of anger is to correct and fix what has been made wrong. And God seems to do that purposefully and perfectly. So that's what anger is is that anger it needs to be a, a movement towards the correcting of what is disruptive love. That's why Timothy Keller k- describes anger as love in motion or love in action. It's when there is wrongdoing, it's the natural move to make it right through love and reconciliation. Uh, anger is the smoke alarm in our house for when something is not right. But often what happens is that instead of going and finding the fire and the smoke in our house, we go and stare at the fire alarm beeping, that we focus so much in on the anger that we don't trace it back to the disruptive or disordered love that's at the heart of that anger. Um, so there's two ways in which I want us to be able to look at this. Um, so God's love or God's anger comes from his holiness and comes from his love. So there's, I think, two avenues of our disruptive love, and one is our neighbor love. When a relationship has been disruptive, when, when someone has been hurt, when someone has been wronged, when it's a close friend of ours, we, we feel that anger for them, right? When someone has been, uh, had injustice against them, that's when we feel anger. But often, a lot of times, we feel angry when our kind of beloved identity of being loved children of God is disruptive as well. So what we need to do is we need to take this journey of what is the anger, what is the underlying emotion of shame, disappointment, frustration, embarrassment. What is that? And then what is the identified disruptive love kind of at the core of it? So could we do a case study on this? Um, And it's the first murder that we find in scripture. So Genesis chapter 4. In this story, we know we have Cain and Abel, the first sons, uh, their brothers. One is the keeper of flock and one is the toiler of the soil. And this is what we read. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from, uh, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Sorry, I didn't keep up with this there. Uh, so notice this, Cain's response, he is very angry. Even in the Hebrew, like, uh, kind of poetic language that it uses, it says that his nose become red hot, that he burned with anger, anger within him was kindled inside. So we, we see that where the anger is, this is the iceberg, right? That he is angry because his favor, his, uh, his um, offering was not favored as much as Abel's. But then we quickly see the, the disruptive emotion, right? His face was downcast. That sounds a lot like shame. Sounds a lot like embarrassment. Or it could be that he's jealous from his brother's offering, right? So that's part of Cain's story is, you know, what is the anger? What is the emotion going on underneath? And it seems to be that there's shame. There, there's embarrassment. His offering was not as good as Abel's offering. Something about it was not quite right? But this is what we see happens. After his anger, God seems to be the one who wants to go and reconcile. Even where it's Cain's job to do so, God here is on the move. Let's read this, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? So notice, God here is almost taking the step to, hey, let's, let's process this. What's the anger? What's the emotion? Why are you angry? This is when our parents tell us to count the 10, you know, 10 before we make a decision, right? This is the slowdown moment. This is what we do with our anger. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Notice the language that's here. God is saying, hey, you're angry. Why are you angry? It's an invitation to to trace the anger back to the original disruptive love. Either that's uh, you know, Cain is feeling this kind of unworthiness with God. He's questioning his love with God because his favor has not been, his, uh, alter, his, uh, sorry, his uh, offering has not been accepted as well. Or maybe there's some jealousy. There's this sibling love that has been disruptive. He's saying, what, what's been disruptive here? What is going on? But notice how God talks about anger, talks about sin. It is like a crouching animal it is waiting outside of your door You see, anger, our sin, wants to have us. It wants to take all of us. It's not just going to take a little bit, but it wants to consume us fully. But God here is saying, you can rule over this. You can take control of your anger. This is the first misstep of uncontrolled, mismanaged anger. And what we're going to see is that it leads to death. We know that uh, Cain does not listen to God, does not trace his anger back to the disruptive love. And that he invites his brother out into a field and kills him. And what we're going to see is that uh, he is cursed by God because of this. And what we see is that this becomes a generational curse. That son after son after son is violent, murderous, and angry. It is not dealt with. So it gets passed on, passed on, and passed on. But also notice this. This is part of the curse. It desires to have you. Let's go one more. Let's see. Okay, maybe it wasn't in there, but notice here, if you go to verse 10 of Genesis 4, it says this. It says that, Cain, you will be a restless wanderer on earth. So, Cain becomes angry with his brother, murders his brother, and part of the curse is not only will you have to toil the land it will not produce for you, not only will your work be disruptive, but Cain was a a man who had a people. He was a man who had a home but now he will be a man who has no home, no people, and you will wander in the wilderness, no place to go. You see, that is the natural outpouring of our anger, is that it pulls us away from community, from group life. It pulls us away, and we become wanderers with no people and no home to have. That is the natural repercussion of where our anger leads us. So oftentimes, we need to ask Ask our anger deeper questions. So this is one of our kind of main core things we talk about at Oikos is asking deeper questions. Um, Because so often, you know, we're going to talk about here in a moment, how do we deal with external conflict? How do I go to someone to deal with this? But so much of the work needs to be inward. It needs to be kind of inside of us. So I want to give just a few helpful questions to do this. So if you have your bulletin or if you have your phone, I'd like you to just kind of feel this out. Uh, The first step in asking our anger deeper questions is this, just to locate your anger. And this is to ask the question, is this really what I'm angry about? So think about a situation where you've been angry, where you've been upset, where you've had a conflict. And ask the question, is what I was angry about really the thing that I was angry about? I think another helpful question with this is, was my anger uh, at the level where it needed to be? Was my anger proportional to the offense that happened? that helps us locate it. So first step, locate your anger. I'll give you just a second to kind of write that out to think about it. Is this really what I'm angry about? Is this what is going on? The next one, define your anger. And this is really just to ask the question, what feeling is going on underneath? Is it disappointment? Is it frustration? Is it embarrassment, jealousy? Uh, Is it a sense of I've been out of control, I've been misunderstood? So think about that moment. What were you actually angry about? Had it been misdirected? And then define your anger. What, what's the thing underneath the iceberg? What's going on right underneath? Next, we need to identify the disruptive love. And this, so this is just to ask a question we've already asked. How has love been disruptive? Has my sense of worth, my sense of value been disruptive? And I'm, I'm lashing out because I've been misunderstood. Or has there been a love with someone else been disruptive? So I don't feel this relational trust. I feel betrayed. I feel, um, you know, someone's gone against, you know, gone behind my back. How lo- has love been disruptive? And I found this really helpful. Um, and oftentimes when I do this myself, when I'm angry or when I feel just kind of bitter, resentment, oftentimes what I find is I'm just just tired. That I have not loved myself in a way that I've respected my limits. Uh, And because of my tiredness, my weariness, I'm on edge, and I lash out on other people. So I found this helpful just in the sense of, is this actually something going on, or have I just not been taking care of myself? And the last step here to ask our anger deeper questions is to forgive and listen. And I think this is a really crucial step. And this is to ask the question, God, what is needed from this disruptive love? Because really, as we are becoming mature Christians, um, there, there's the discernment and wisdom here of do I, do I go and address every single little thing that I'm upset about? Because I probably spend most of my days addressing those little things, right? But th- there's a question we need to ask here is, God, I'm, I'm frustrated by this thing. You know, someone has upset me. Someone has angered me, and I, I've traced it. I know what's going on. Can I give this to you, God, and will it quelch the anger? Can I give this to you and give them, forgive them, give it to you, and it be dealt with, be taken care of? Or after I've done this, God, will you tell me if not, then I need to go and reconcile. I I need to go and deal with this directly. So I find this very helpful is to forgive and to give it to God and to just simply listen. What what do I need to do with this anger? Do I need to go and address it? So uh, that's kind of the internal. And now we need to get to Jesus' teaching on what he says about anger. So notice this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister uh, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So notice here, Jesus doesn't just say when you become angry. It's when you become and stay angry with a brother or sister, which is a pretty key understanding. But the first thing that we see is, that Jesus here says, when you call someone raka, raka is this Aramaic word for like empty head. Uh, it's really to question uh, someone's intelligence. It's to say, uh, what, one commentator, John Scott, uh, gives some other translations for this word raka. It's, it's to call someone nitwit, blockhead, idiot, or numbskull. Raka is to attack someone's mind, whereas you fool is really to attack someone's heart, you, you know, to attack their morality. So it's to attack their intelligence and to attack their morality. And again, it's that totalizing. It's the saying that that is who you are. That is your identity. And what we see is that this becomes a, a form of death because it becomes the death of that person's humanity. Is that when we call someone rock and we call someone fool, we're not leaning into the relationship. We're not ranking that bridge to reconciliation, but we're in fact making separation. We're leaving no open doors to deal with what is actually going on. Uh, Richard Beck, uh, in his book, talks about it like this. He describes this long-form disgusted anger a contempt like this. This is why Jesus says, calling people idiots, rakas or fools is a form of killing. Contempt is affectional murder, is a death in the heart. To, to choose to use our words as, as weapons, as spears and swords, and not as medicine to heal we have been putting to death not only the person's humanity and identity, but the relationship, the potential to see it redeemed. It becomes a murdering of the person and the relationship that we may have with them. And he says, you are liable to judgment. Just as you are called to not physically murder, you are called to redeem relationships and not to break them apart. So, Raka, you fool. I want to skip down to verse 25, and then we'll go back up. He says, the settle matters quickly. So this is when you have an issue with uh, maybe not someone inside the church. When you have issues with someone, notice he says settle matters quickly. And this makes sense. We've talked about this, that anger, when it becomes so destructive, is when we hold on to it. It's like the hot potato that we hold on to. We don't throw it away. It it begins to burn us. Uh, It begins to grow. It it escalates further and further. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about this as well. In your anger, do not sin, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, Jesus here is calling us to reconcile quickly. Where God was slow to anger but quick to reconcile, we are often quick to become angry but slow to reconcile. And we've talked about all the reasons why it feels good to be right. We don't want to disrupt the relationship, but Jesus is calling us, deal with it quickly before your anger gets out of control. Deal with it quickly. And I think there is some wisdom in here because we want to deal with our anger responsively, uh, responsibly but not reactively. So we don't want to just take our na- initial anger and then go deal with it quickly in our moment of rage. we want to take a moment, pause, ask our, anger deep, uh, ask our anger deeper questions, and then go and deal with it. To not let it grow, to not let it burn, but to deal with it quickly. Um, this is often why you know James says, be slow to speak and slow to become angry. And notice here, while they were on their way, and he, he mentions this because he, Jesus is understanding and appreciating what anger does. It just simply escalates and escalates and a- escalates. But while you're side by side, your adversary, because when you go to court, you're going to be face to face. You're going to be uh, trying to win at that moment. But while you're going, deal with it then, because it will simply continue and continue to consume. It's not just going to be this, but it's going to keep on going and going and going. That is why Jesus calls us to deal with our anger. Quickly. So let's go back to verse twenty-three, skip up, and this is going to take us to our last text. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So notice what Jesus is doing here. It is radical reconciliation. He doesn't just say, If someone has wronged you, he's saying if you know there is something going on with someone else, you should be the one to go and take care of it. He says, you go and be the one to resolve it. You see, dealing with our anger, dealing with our confrontation always has to be active. You know, the the moment of reconciliation never just simply falls in our lap, but we have to go pursue it. We have to go be the first ones to take care of it. Again, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. You know, get rid of it. It, Anger cannot be just simply covered up. It can't be forgotten about. It's going to continue to grow and grow. Uh, When we first moved into our house, uh, we had this kitchen that really needed to be updated, but we were pushing it off. And uh, unfortunately, though, our dishwasher flooded and just ruined all the floors but what we found was that underneath uh, our like laminate, there was just kitchen carpet. For some reason, they just placed over the top. So now all that carpet was soaked up, and now our laminate was soaked up. So it all had to be ripped out. But you know, carpet's not that hard to rip off. It, it took about five seconds to do it ourselves. But apparently, the owners before thought it was easier just to lay it on top. But then we also noticed though that they had to like cut the baseboards to fit the higher level of floor. So oftentimes we feel like anger is easier just to just to let it be, just to not think about it, cover it up, but we then have to, you know, work around it, we have to, you know, uh, not deal with people, kind of avoid people, but Jesus is saying, if you know someone has something against you, rip it up, get rid of it, it's just going to mold, it's just going to decay, and we need to take care of it quickly, but notice Jesus here says, go and take care of it, go, be the first one, and reconcile it, so this is where we need to talk about um, another text, Matthew chapter 18. This one isn't on the screen, but if you want to follow me along, this is Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse uh, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others so that every matter may be established by the testimony of of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus here is just taking care of all the different sides. He says, if someone has something against you, you go and take care of it. But if someone has sinned against you, you go and take care of it. So do you see the vision of the community that Jesus is, is creating in his kingdom? That is that when, anytime there's a conflict, people are actively meeting in the middle, that we're not having to wait on anyone, that we all know and we're committed to being a graceful community that deals with this well because we know just how destructive it is. So when I'm upset with someone, I go to them and I know that they are coming to me, that we're both leaning in and we're not leaning away from what is going on. You see, what Jesus is getting at here is that uh, conflict is simply the truth that a brother or sister should be spoken with, never about. Is that in my moment, I'm going to go the, go to them and to deal with it. Uh, I, I love how Jesus here gives just a, a forward way of like, hey, if you have a problem with someone, go and deal with it. If they won't listen, bring a few more along. If they still won't listen, bring the church involved. And then we, we treat them like pagans and tax collectors. There's this natural flow of, that Jesus is providing, because conflict is just difficult to deal with. It's something that is hard to do, but Jesus is inviting us to a gracious-filled community that takes care of our anger. Uh, I want to give, we're going to add on to what we just did, so pull out your bulletin, or if you had it on your phone, and we're going to do something called a clean fight, a clean confrontation, Uh, and this is really, hopefully, steps to uh, how to do this well. I'm angry at someone. I've identified it How can I lean in and then address it with them? Uh, So I want to do this, but I want to give just a few helpful practical tips before and and then we'll be done. I I find it helpful that in a moment of anger, it's helpful to go to the person and say, hey, I've got a problem, but then also, hey, can I rate my anger to you? Just so everyone is kind of on the same page. Like, hey, one out of 10, I'm kind of at like a six, just so you know. That's that's a helpful way to begin. Uh, What we also need to do is, In our moment of dealing with a conflict, we need to deal with that one thing and not let it pull up, you know, the five other things behind it, but to take one issue at a time, deal with it, and address it. Um, And we must always enter into confrontation with gentleness and humility, that following the way of Jesus, that I am humble, and that I am, you know, gentle in dealing with this conflict. So I want to give just maybe some indicators that we need to deal with conflict, and we're going to walk through this. Timothy Keller, in his book on forgiveness, gives kind of seven indicators that I need to deal with something going on inside. The first one is you roll your eyes inside and think, you idiot, what, you know, what a mess you are. Uh, the second one is you hear about a person having a problem and it's almost satisfying, right? You, you, we kind of get enjoyment when someone's having issues. The third is you, you start to find most things they do irritating. You, you start to feel awkwardness in the relationship or when you're around that person. And then you start to avoid them altogether. Uh, and sixth is, if given the chance, you may say something negative or not uh, polite about that person to someone else. And then seventh, other people begin to notice there is friction between you and that person. Uh, personally, those were pretty convicting to me uh, when I heard those. So if we have an issue with someone, how, how do we just go address this? So I want to walk through this and kind of give an example as we do it, and I encourage you to write it down. So this is having a clean confrontation, a clean fight. So let's say you have a friend, roommate, who is constantly late. They're never on time to anything, they're always bailing, there's always flaking, and someone, that hits someone really <laughs> close to home. Uh, I, I don't have any of these in my life, so don't feel like you're being called out in this moment. Uh, but let's say you have someone like that in your life. You begin to notice there's this bitterness building up within you about, about that. What, what could you do about it? Here's the first step, uh, share the problem. So this is assuming we've done the internal work and now we're doing the external work. Share the problem. So this would be, I notice. I, I notice this thing going on. So if we're using this example, uh, you know, I notice that you're often late or you cancel at the last minute when, when we have plans. So I wanna give you a moment. Think about your anger situation and, and fill the sin. What would you say to, to your moment? You know, hey, I noticed this happened. So, I'll, I'll give you a second to, to fill that in. Share the problem. From my point of view, I, I noticed dot, dot, dot. Next is uh, we want to share the weight. And really, this is to say, this is important to me. This hurt me because, dot, dot, dot. So, in our situation, this is important to me because I feel my time is not respected. When this happens, you know, when you're constantly late, when this thing happens, I feel like I'm just disrespected, that my time is not of much value. So, in your situation, what would you say? Share the weight. This is important to me because fill it in. Next is share your part of the conflict. Share your part. I, I know I contribute to this issue by, so in our situation, we might say, I know I contributed to this issue by making sarcastic comments and snide remarks. You know, I, I'll, I'll say that I didn't help this situation out. So for you in your situation, where did you contribute? And this is such a bridge building, you know, moment. That I, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I also uh, need forgiveness. I know I'm a part of this. Share your part in the conflict. Fourth step, uh, share the desired outcome. I desire to reconcile with you to do that I believe or to do that I need. So in our situation, we might say, uh, I need you to recognize that this has been done. And and next time, could you just let me know if you're going to be late? Could you let me know earlier? Um, And what's really important about this stage is that we also have to have realistic expectations, that people are not going to be automatically perfect when we ask them about something, right? So we, we don't need to say, hey, could you never be late again, right? Like that's not, that's not fair in this situation. But to just say, hey, I need you to hear this, otherwise it's going to keep eating me up inside. And then, you know, next time could you just let me know earlier if you're going to be late? So for you, share the desired outcome. You know, what do you need from this conflict or situation? What's your desired outcome? And last. This is simply to dialogue. This is to give the person a chance to share. So allow the person to consider the request and to share uh, maybe insights that they're experiencing from that situation. You know, is this person willing to do all the request, part of the request, or simply none at all? Um, and then this opens up into a grace-filled discussion and dialogue on how to move forward. Uh, and uh, many people who talk about conflict management, is we, you know, they encourage to write it down, to have an agreement. Like, hey, we're going to try this moving forward. And if something comes back up, we're going to, we'll talk about it again, right? So, clean fighting. Um, and I encourage you, like, if, if conflict and this, you know, confrontation is hard for you to deal with, just write this down and, and read it to the person. You know, these are already hard enough conversations. You know, what would it be like to just write this down, take it with you, and to, to deal with it? But let me close, and we're going to be done, so we can go get our kids. Uh, in chapter 18, there's this passage on dealing with when someone sins against you. But what's interesting about this passage is that it's right before a parable of the wandering sheep. So 90, you know, a shepherd has 100 sheep. 99 are fine, one wanders away. But we rejoice when the one returns and is found. But what's interesting, though, is that the next, the next text in this passage is on how do we deal with sin in the church. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, we are building a community of grace-filled people that we are building a community that we celebrate when people come back, but we also understand and realize that they may have left for a reason, may have left for a conflict. So what would it look like that when they re-enter that we're going to just address that right away? How do we deal with that well? But then also right after this text that we just read in Matthew 18 about dealing with sin is this parable of the unmerciful servant, the unforgiving servant. And, And I'm sure we're familiar with this, that A servant goes to his king, goes to his master, and he can't pay his debt. And the master wants to throw him in prison to to take care of it, but he begs for forgiveness and the king gives it. And we know that the servant then goes on and then does the opposite with someone who owes him. Throws him in prison, beats him. And and this is what the king, the master, our, our heavenly father says about people like this. In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So it seems like Jesus is envisioning a community that is being transformed because we are forgiven, that we have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus, and we ought to show that to other people. We do this for the sake of others, to bring them back into community. We do that for the sake of the kingdom, that we are people changed by grace. And this changes how we deal with our anger, that we ought to redeem our anger to find the disruptive love, and to bring reconciliation into our communities. So if you would, let's stand, and I'll pray, and you can go get your kids. Holy Father, we pray for boldness and courage in the midst of conflict. We pray that we are people changed by grace, that we have been forgiven, so we ought to forgive one another, that this is at the heart of your people, that we are grace-filled and that we love well. That means we might need to go have uncomfortable conversations, but we do it for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your people, and because you have forgiven us, that you are Lord over heaven and earth, and this is the life that you call us into. Bless this community. Be with us as we deal with our anger, we deal with people, and love each other well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.